Christ is risen. Yes. Hey, um, if you're just joining us for Easter, the first time you've never been at Sunridge, thanks for coming. My name's Britt. I'm one of the pastors here. And for all the loyal Sunridgians, um, you know, thanks for coming back week in and week out. Um, the holiest of the holy, we're here at 8 a.m., you know, wanted to be up early. Actually, I think they wanted to hit the restaurants before you guys did, but uh, I'm just so grateful to be here. Uh, I came upon this quote as I was preparing uh, for this series in this message, and it comes from um, right after World War II, uh, from an unknown author in particular, but someone who had suffered through uh, the Holocaust, and it's this, if there is no God, never was a God, why do we miss him so much? You know, whether you're religious or not, I think that resonates for most of us. Because there's something inside us that longs for the presence of God in our lives. Solomon wrote that uh, God has placed eternity in the hearts of humanity. And even though there's like this scary part to it, we, we want to come face to face with the eternal. Uh, oftentimes I've talked to people who say that they don't believe in God, and most often in those conversations they tell me that they wish that they could because there's something inside us that makes us long for God in our lives. Now, I know that people come to Easter services for all kinds of reasons. Some of you are here because you are genuinely here to worship and celebrate uh, this, what you would call a life-changing event, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And some of you, you're here for the feels, really. Um, you know, you love Easter. You like the story. You like the music. You love the spoken word, obviously. Um, but the idea that the resurrection or what happens on Easter morning translates into your life tomorrow, it's, th that connection really isn't there for you. Some of you are here, you know, you would describe yourself as kind of spiritual. You know, you, you love the Easter story, and you get it, you understand it, um, but it's part of many other stories that you get and understand and embrace, and you kind of like break off where, you know, some, some maybe of your friends that talk about how the resurrection is changing their lives, and that's where you kind of Say, you know, that's good for you, but kind of I, I have my own thoughts on that. And then some of you are here uh, because you feel like you were made to come. Let's just be honest, right? You know, uh, you, you finally got that date, and he or she invited you to church, so here you are. Some of you are here because your mom invited you. And I just want to say, even if you're not a Christian, there has to be points in heaven for doing something that your mom asked you to do. Let's just all <laughs> agree to that. So wherever you're coming from today, I hope that I can help you connect some dots when it comes to uh, the resurrection. But before I do that, I want to pray. And I want to just tell you that part of what I want to pray about today is what's happened in Sri Lanka. I don't know if you are watching the news this morning, but this, uh, early this morning, uh, Christians gathered all over Sri Lanka, and uh, there were some terrorist bombings. And at my last count, there were over 150 dead and many more uh, injured, and uh, so they bombed churches and a few hotels. And, you know, it's just, it's mind-boggling, you know, that we gathered here today in celebration to worship just as they did 
And people lost their lives today because they were in a place of worship. It's just mind-boggling. So I want to pray for them, and I want to pray for what God does for us in this service. Will you join me if you're a person of faith? God, uh, we do, our, our hearts go out to the people of Sri Lanka, those that have lost their lives and certainly their families that are grieving and are injured. I pray um, that your grace would minister to them. And we all look forward to a time when that is no longer a story and we are in heaven and uh, we can worship you freely and without fear. Yet we realize that that isn't the story in many places in the world today. We thank you um, that we can do that here right now. And um, I pray that you would meet each of us with your grace from, from where we're starting at and that you would help us either to discover or rediscover something new about your grace because we were here today. In Jesus' name, amen. So um, I, noticed you no- I hope you noticed that when you came in, there was a bottle of water on your chair. And I just want to let you know that this is no indication of the length of my message, okay, right <laughs> off the bat. But there's, there's a reason for this. So if you're already drinking it, that's cool. But I just ask you, like, if you just hold on to this, because when I wrap up, I'm going to refer back to it. Um, because last week we started a series uh, that we've titled Grace Like Water. And Grace Like Water is a collection of messages about how through Jesus Christ, uh, the pure and amazing grace of God flows to us. And it can flow through us to others if we allow it. You know, the Bible says that we're saved by grace. But that meaning is, is, goes far beyond just like, I have my ticket to heaven and I'm, I have eternity. The truth is we're saved daily by grace. We rely on God's grace, sometimes moment by moment, depending on what's going on in our lives. So day by day, we're being saved by his grace. Uh, You can live for weeks without food, but only days without water. And so the grace of God is kind of like that. It's like water. And as I mentioned already, we, we are designed by God with an innate thirst for that grace. Uh, experts will tell you that dying of physical thirst is not really that painful of a death. But that is not true of spiritual thirst. I love what Thomas Merton has said about that. He said that spiritual dryness is one of the most acute experiences of longing we can have. Maybe you haven't been able to put it in that eloquent of words, but if you've ever thought to yourself, there must be more. There must be more than this. There is. It's called the grace of God. And every body of water, every river, whether mighty or puny, has a source to it. It has a headwaters. So too does grace. But you might be surprised to realize that the source of grace isn't found in religion. See, in Jesus' day, they had religion. We have religion today. Gordon Conwell Seminary did a study just a couple of years ago, and they found that there are 43,000 denominations or breakdowns of denominations into separate organizations and categories. The fact that there are so many categories of Christian faith may say something about the ungrace that can be found in religion. You might also uh, be surprised to know that Grace's source is not found in the Bible. Grace is not the source 
or the Bible is not the source of grace. You can read about it there, but it's not contained in it, and, nor in any other religious document. Now, I want to say I love the Bible. I've studied the Bible. I've given my life to understanding it and, and breaking it down week in and week out in a comprehensive way, uh, in a comprehensible way uh, to people. But, you know, the truth is, like religion, the Bible can become a source of ungrace. I was kind of like caught up short about that, uh, if you recall, in January when we had the government shutdown. And I had some strong feelings about that, and I put them out on social media, and because I'm a pastor, I found some pithy verses to attach to my robust thoughts. <laughs> there, it was more of a rant than thoughts. But I found these great verses to attach to it, and then I was horrified to see all of my friends who come from very diverse political backgrounds and everything, regions of the of the country, they started using the Bible on each other in my social feed. And I'm like, hey, get off my feed. This is mine. But it was in that moment that I realized that I, too, had done that. The source of grace is not found in science. I love science. I'm fascinated by it. Uh, science has given us so much, like when it comes to medicine, and made our lives better. Uh, but you won't find grace in science. And I think we can all agree that we won't find grace in politics, right? Can we say amen to that? Yes. All right. So whether you're religious or not, we all agree on that, I think, right? So we're good. You see, grace has one single source. Paul wrote in Romans 5.15, this is from the contemporary English version, Jesus Christ alone brought God's gift of undeserved grace to many. Jesus Christ alone brought God's gift of undeserved grace to many. And on this Easter morning, wherever you're coming from, I ask you to consider just two things about the source of the grace of God, Jesus. First of all, I ask you to consider who he is and how he lived. John writes in his gospel in the first chapter that Jesus was full of grace and truth. He is the epitome of both. That's pretty rare. I don't know, you probably have your gracious friends and your truth friends, you know what I'm talking about? And it's pretty rare to see those blended together. It's very pleasant when they come together, but it's rare. Jesus was the epitome of grace and truth together. And you see that because somehow um, the most holy person that ever lived attracted the most unholy. Sinners, as they were called, sought his presence. They didn't flee from him. People that were unlike Jesus liked Jesus. So if, if you're here today and you're against Christianity, I would ask you, What's your beef with Jesus? Because he was perfect, but he sought out the broken. He was righteous and holy, but he engaged and kept company with sinners. He elevated women and the poor, and he broke down racial barriers in a time of patriarchy, in a time of uncompassion toward those that had less, in a time of great ethnic separation. 
He was the son of God, yet he used every resource he had to serve humanity. He epitomized grace. If you're not a Christian, what's your beef with Jesus? I'm, I, I love this quote by Philip Yancey where he says that when people, there, there was a New York Times um, reporter that asked him, why are you a Christian? He said, well, number one, lack of better alternatives. And two, Jesus. I can connect to that. I bet you can too. If you're a Christian, I'd ask you this. When is the last time that you really considered your faith in the light of who Jesus is? Is the faith that you possess, the creed that you hold to, is it reflective of who the Son of God, the source of grace, is it reflective of who he was? Because oftentimes the flow of a water source looks much different than its origins, right? As a river flows through the topography, it can become contaminated, uh, uh, both intentionally and unintentionally. You know, next Sunday, if you're interested, I'm going to be breaking down and helping us understand what, what does it really mean, the grace of God? Um, and I'm going to talk about how, just like water, grace loads up with contaminants as it moves through time. And oftentimes, human beings are actually adding things to grace to make it taste a little better, like we do water. So that's what we're going to be talking about. So consider who Jesus is and how he lived. And then secondly, I ask you to consider his unique claim, the resurrection. In John eleven twenty five, Jesus said, I am the resurrection, which is not, that's much more than like, I'm going to resurrect or I can do that. He's saying, I am the embodiment of the resurrection. So it makes the capacity to conquer death no problem. And wouldn't we all agree that that is a game changer? On Easter morning, 2,000 years ago, the biographies of Jesus tell us that Mary Magdalene, Joanna, and Mary, uh, the mother of James, and, a, and another group of unnamed women went to the tomb to perform kind of the traditional after-burial uh, ceremonies with Jesus' body. And when they got there, they discovered that his body was gone. And they encountered an angel who said, if you're looking for Jesus, the Nazarene who was crucified, he is risen. He is not here. Something happened. There was an empty tomb. What made it empty? Now, that, I know that some of you right now, it's like you're about to disconnect. Maybe you've been following along with me so far, but you're really starting to think because you come to church on Easter, you know, occasionally. You're starting to think, well, yeah, Brit, I, I kind of like, I like some of the stuff you're saying, but it sounds like you're about to go to that part of the story where something happened 2,000 years ago, which we can't prove today, and you're going to lose me there, Britt, because whatever the explanation, dead people don't rise. You know what? If that's you, you're right. They don't. We know that now. They knew that then. But that's kind of the point. Something really happened. And whether you think the stone was rolled away as Christians believe and Jesus walked out alive or not, 
something did happen that first Easter. And there are some facts that we can agree upon, I'm sure of it. There's just th some things that we all know. For instance, we all know that Jesus existed. The, the Jesus the Bible talks about in history. That Jesus is one of the most documented figures in all of human history. And of course, we find the most detailed accounts in four biographies written about the life of Jesus, all independent of themselves. But you also find Jesus mentioned by Thallus, a first century Greek writer, Pliny the Younger, Roman historians like Tacitus and Suetonius, as well as Josephus, a Jewish historical writer. So we know that Jesus existed. We know that after what we would call a three-year public service stint, that Jesus was sentenced to death by Roman crucifixion. And we know that that execution was carried out by people who are experts in death. So the idea of the swoon theory, that he was only mostly dead, uh, is not very plausible. We also know that on the third day following his death, there was an empty tomb. And when the two Marys and Joanna and, and other women arrived, the stone was rolled away and the body was gone. And I mean, no matter what your explanation is, we can all agree there was an empty tomb. Nobody denies this. And we know that something made it empty. We also know that on day three, after being crucified, those people that were his followers who are now hiding away and denying their connection to him switch gears abruptly. And they go from being cowards of the moment to boldly declaring, we saw the risen Jesus. We touched him. We talked to him. We ate with him. And there are some accounts of even hundreds at a time witnessing the risen Christ. And then there's not just one, not just a handful, but all of the disciples, all of them, died a martyr's death. Not a single denial after seeing the resurrected Christ. What happened? Something happened. We all agreed to that. What happened? How did these cowards who had abandoned ship and are deniers, now people who are willing to give their lives for what they say they believe. If that's true, then we know that this is one of the most dramatic transformations of people in human history. We know that they said it was because they saw the resurrected Lord. If not, how do you explain impetuous Peter, the guy who could talk the talk but often couldn't walk the walk? How do you explain Thomas, the doubter, who was always on the periphery, never signing up, waiting to see how it played out, always needed more evidence? How do you explain the Apostle Paul, who is a murderer of Christians, happy to do so, and dramatically does this flip? How do we explain that? We know also that after this happened, that Christianity, or the movement of Christian, 
Christianity explodes, and I mean explodes. Uh, scholars tell us by A.D. 100, there are 25,000 followers of Christ in that region. And by A.D. 300, that number had jumped to 20 million. And today, there are billions. We know that today, Christianity is the largest faith in the world. And we know that no one at the time foresaw this happening. Not paganism, not Judaism, not science of the day. There was no worldview or philosophy that saw this coming. Not even the most powerful entity in the world, the Roman Empire, who was going to face lots of challenges and had the most to lose because this happened. They didn't see it coming. No one saw it coming. N.T. Wright has written the quintessential uh, work on the resurrection of Christ, and he talks about how that no one would, could have even ever thought up the resurrection. No one thought it could happen because nobody believed that such a thing was possible. And he writes this, the early Christians did not invent the empty tomb and the meetings or sightings of the risen Jesus in order to explain a faith they already had. They developed that faith because of what they saw, because of what they experienced, because what they didn't think was going to happen or could happen did. You see, we get the sequence wrong. We think the, resurrect, the, the proof of the resurrection is the Bible tells me so. That's the opposite. The truth is the opposite. There was no Bible at the time of the resurrection. We have the New Testament today because the authors experienced the resurrection. Christianity thrives for hundreds of years without a full canon of Scripture, without all the books that we have in our New Testament. They believed in the resurrection. That's what caused them to write what we have now is the New Testament. The reason why I took us kind of like on a trip through looking at Jesus, who he was, and the unique claim that he made to be resurrected was I wanted to get us back to the source of grace. Jesus Christ alone brought God's gift of undeserved grace to many. The source of the grace of God is Jesus Christ. And 2,000 years ago, when the Roman soldiers pounded nails into the hands and feet of Jesus, they thought they were taking his life. But with every swing of that hammer, they were breaking through to an aquifer filled with the grace of God that would begin to flow onto humanity and changing people from the inside out. And that's why Jesus said to the woman at the well in Mark 4, 14, the water I give takes away thirst altogether. It becomes a perpetual spring within giving eternal life. When I picture going to a source of, you know, a river or something, my, my image is an arduous trip upstream against the current through jungles or forests with dangerous creatures in it and, and you know, climbing craggy and snowy mountains. But I want you to notice that Jesus brought the grace of God to us. 
It's not a trip that we make to earn the grace of God. Jesus brought the grace of God to us. I'm not sure how you ended up here today or what your thoughts were in coming, whether you're religious or not, but I want you to think about this. That Christianity is different from every other religion and that it does not require you to clean up your act to join it. That Jesus comes to you in whatever state you are and he offers you grace. And it's an inexhaustible supply that not just can make you free from sin before God, but it's something that will give you life day in and day out if you drink of it. But ask the band to come up, and we're going to end at the end of what I say here. Um, we're going to stand and we're going to sing a song. It's called "Glorious Day." We're going to be able to like say the words about how glorious those of us who have received Christ and and have embraced the resurrection of Jesus. You know. You know how life-changing has been for you, and we're going to end this service by singing that. But before we do that, I want you to take this bottle of water, and I want you to think about that, that it represents the water of life, the grace of God, and it has a source. And, uh, you know, the Bible says that we can have grace in our time of need, and all of us have come to church with different things on our mind, different seasons of life, different challenges that we're facing. And this bottle of water, I want you to take it home with you. And I, w- I, want it, I want you to remember that the grace of God is available to you. Some of you, the best thing you could do with this bottle of water is just drink it, to receive the grace of God. The Bible says that God gives grace to the humble. And if you will humble your heart before God and, and reach out to him, God's grace will fill your spirit and your soul. And you will start something new and a whole different way of looking at life. You can do that. Let, if you need to just drink this water, if you're thirsty, physically drink it. But when you do, remember that it's our spiritual thirst that draws us to drink the grace of God. Some of you got that down. You're good. I'm not thirsty today, so I want you to take this bottle of water with you, and I want you to give it to somebody. Maybe you don't give them the actual bottle. That might be weird. Can we all agree to that? Hey, this water means something, but I don't have the guts to talk to you about this. Um, <laughs> what, 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 the picture I, I want you to remember is that you possess the grace of God if you're a Christian. And you can share it with others. Paul writes that uh, we hold the treasure, the grace of God, in clay vessels. We're just an ordinary vessel, but we hold this treasure. And this week, next month, today, you might have an opportunity to share the grace of God with somebody. Let this bottle of water remind you of that. And some of you are here today and, you know, you don't know where you're at. And I just want you to take this bottle of water and put it somewhere. Put it in your office. Put it, put it somewhere where you can see it regularly as you start to think about 
whether faith matters to you at a different level. You, you, it's, you don't have to commit to it, but just leave it there and let it just remind you on occasion that the grace of God is available when you're ready for it. Let's pray.